This is The Guardian. Hallo, hier ist Clark. Sicher gibt es Dinge, bei denen du dich trotz einer Riesenauswahl super auskennst. Vielleicht sind es Automodelle oder Joghurtalternativen. Und wie sieht es mit Versicherungen aus? <lacht> Kein Problem. Mit Clark hast du auch da den Plan. Denn Clark vergleicht die Angebote von über 160 Versicherern für dich und empfiehlt dir die, die zu dir passen. Die Übersicht über alle deine Versicherungsverträge behältst du mit der kostenlosen Clark-App. Ganz ohne Papierkram. Welcome to Politics Weekly Extra. I'm Jonathan Friedland. Now, if you've been following the news from the US over the last few weeks, you'll have seen it's all been about Joe Biden and his legislative program, whether or not the Democrats can unite and pass his big spending bills. We've been talking about that hugely on the podcast, getting into what's in them and what their prospects are have been. Last week, there was the big breakthrough. President Biden is celebrating a big bipartisan victory and what he calls a once-in-a-generation investment in America. The bipartisan infrastructure bill promising more than $1 trillion on roads and bridges and broadband and all the rest of it did finally pass in the House of Representatives and should be on the verge of coming into law. It doesn't mean it's all over, this saga, because... Joe Biden has his other big spending bill, so-called Build Back Better, full of social spending and investment on the climate to come. But a crucial player in all these stories, and certainly in getting through the infrastructure bill, the person right there in the middle, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi. We're in the best place ever today. Described often as one of the most formidable tacticians ever to enter Congress. She's in her 80s. She's expected to retire soon, which raises a big question of what happens once she's gone. Lots to talk about, and who better to talk about it with than the woman who quite literally wrote the book on Nancy Pelosi. Susan Page is the Washington bureau chief for USA Today and author of Madam Speaker, Nancy Pelosi and the Lessons of Power. And I began my conversation with Susan Page by asking her, how did Nancy Pelosi enter politics? Well, she entered the world of politics, Jonathan, on the day she was born. Her father was then a member of Congress representing Baltimore, Maryland. In fact, he was on the House floor lobbying for a bill for FDR when his wife went into labor. He finished lobbying the bill. He cast his vote. And only then did he leave to go back to Baltimore to greet his Uh, sixth child, his first girl, uh, his youngest, Nancy D'Alessandro. So she was absolutely born into a political dynasty. And I know her brother was an office holder too. But presumably, and maybe this is a prejudice on my part, but I'm suspecting that a Italian Catholic family in the 1940s had political ambitions for its sons, but probably not for its daughters. Oh, you're absolutely right. There was no expectation uh, with her family, with either of her parents or with herself, that she might actually one day be an office holder herself. Uh, she went to a Catholic girls' school in Baltimore. Then she went to a Catholic women's college here in Washington. She got married. She had five children in six years in a, and a week 
which has got to be set some kind of record. That's and she was, she was very set on being uh, caring about politics, being an active volunteer, raising money for candidates. But it was only when she was in her 40s that it even occurred to her that she might run for office herself. Which is very late. I mean, what was the prompt for that in, in her 40s? It's very much what happens with many women in politics in America. They don't think about running for office until another woman encourages them to do so. And in Nancy Pelosi's case, Sala Burton was the congresswoman from San Francisco, part of the Burton political machine there, quite a legendary political machine in California. She's dying of cancer uh, in 1987. She calls in her friend Nancy Pelosi, who by that point had been served a term as chair of the Democratic Party in California and said, Nancy, I want you to run for my open seat. And if you do, I'll endorse you. And that endorsement's important because Pelosi had no history uh, on the ballot. And to be backed by the Burton machine would be a big advantage, not a guarantee of victory, but it would be a big edge for Nancy Pelosi. And after some thought, after some consultation, Pelosi decided to do it. She entered one of those wild California races, 14 candidates on the ballot, some of them better known and more experienced than she was. She won narrowly, and that was the last close election she would have in San Francisco. So it's these multiple moves here because she's moved from East Coast Baltimore to the West Coast to San Francisco for, for, for you know, because of her, the direction of personal life took. She goes into politics, as you say, in her 40s or elected politics. She's been behind the scenes before then. We're going to sort of fast forward inevitably because she does get to Capitol Hill uh, with that election that you've mentioned. And it makes it to lead her party in the House as minority leader by 2002. And eventually, because the Democrats retake the House, she ends up as the leader of the Democrats in the House, as Speaker of the House in 2007. I mean, I've obviously sped through there. But if you had to explain how somebody goes from being a novice to being the leader of their party in the House, what would you say was her formula? How did she get there? How did she rise to the top? Thank you, my colleagues. Thank you, Leader Boehner, Mr. Speaker, Mr. Speaker. I accept this gavel in the spirit of partnership, not partisanship. Well, you know, her father, who besides serving in Congress, also served three terms as mayor of Baltimore. He was called Tommy the Elder D'Alessandro. He had some lessons of power. And his number one lesson of power was, no one is going to give you power. You have to seize it. And that is something that has really marked Nancy Pelosi's career. She was not destined to be in the leadership. In fact, the guys who were in the leadership were not eager for her to join their ranks. She launched an outsider campaign that lasted three years to get in the leadership. She defeated Steny Hoyer, a colleague who thought he was in line to become uh, the Democratic whip. She defeated him, and within two years, she was the leader of the party herself. It's really an extraordinary right. She's held on to power since then for two decades. She has led the Democrats in the House at a time the Republicans in the House have gone through four different leaders. It's so interesting. I mean, the a word that recurs a lot in, in your writings about Nancy Pelosi is underestimated. And, and that, I, I, I think that must be partly about, as a woman, she was 
repeatedly underestimated, including by people on her own side. How did she navigate that to this idea of seeking a role that no woman had ever filled before and what expectations there were of her among, yes, her opponents, but also her colleagues? So I think she has been underestimated. I think her contributions have sometimes, her achievements have sometimes been underestimated as well. And her attitude has been to put her head down and plow ahead. She has basically ignored those who would see her as not up to the job or who would want to challenge her or who would ignore her. And she has prevailed by being one of the most skilled legislative tacticians in the history of the United States. And at this point, toward the end of her career, uh, I think there is less underestimating of Nancy Pelosi. That's particularly been the case since she spent four years as the face of the Democratic opposition to Donald Trump. So interesting that you use the word tactician there and, and to speak of tactics. And in fact, it gives me an opportunity to ask you, for, particularly for our listeners outside the United States, to explain what the role of Speaker of the House entails. We know it's a million miles away from the Speaker in the, in, in the British House of Commons, who is a kind of umpire figure. But why tactics are so important for the House Speaker as understood in the United States? So the Speaker of the House is the first office mentioned in the U.S. Constitution. It's mentioned in Article One. The presidency doesn't come along till Article Two of the Constitution, but it's not defined. And there have been times when the speaker has been not a particularly powerful person, somebody who kind of runs the trains, defers to committee chairman. But that's not what's happened in recent decades, really since Newt Gingrich became the Speaker of the House after this after in 1994, it has become the center of power, uh, at least on the House side and generally in the entire Congress. It is the single person who has the power to decide when something comes up in the House, under what rules. Uh, it has become really the head of the Congress with an ability to have as much influence as the president does when it comes to passing legislation. So she is a sort of tactical master in terms of the business of getting legislation through. But in terms of where she stands, this can be tricky because the right depict Nancy Pelosi, indeed use the name San Francisco's Nancy Pelosi as shorthand, as a kind of ultra-liberal hate figure on the one hand, and then the left, particularly a sort of new generation, younger progressive caucus in Congress and their supporters see her almost as the embodiment of you know, establishment, moderation and uh, excessive pragmatism as if she's just going to sell out principles just to get things done. So w which is it in your and I know you worked, you spoke to everybody, knew Nancy Pelosi and to Nancy Pelosi herself for this book. W where did you come down? Is she a figure of the left or the right or somewhere in between? She's, she's, they're both right. She is a San Francisco liberal. She is a, an ideological liberal Democrat in the FDR tradition. But she is also the ultimate pragmatist. She wants the most liberal thing to happen that can be achieved. And she has a, a definite sense that a half a loaf is better than no loaf at all. That's where she's come into con conflict with the modern progressive left in the Democratic Party. But she definitely believes in big government acting to help people uh, in a way that repels Republicans on the right. That point about half a loaf rather than no loaf at all, it doesn't mean that she'll go for, you know, a quarter loaf. I mean, she'll go for 
as big as she can. And you tell a really interesting story about how she dealt with the Obama administration when she thought they were going to go too small in their ambition on health care. You know, for too long, few things left working families more vulnerable to the anxieties and insecurities of today's economy than a broken health care system. Here's what happened. The Democrats lost a critical Senate seat in a special election in Massachusetts, and it meant they couldn't automatically uh, get over a filibuster in the Senate. And there were people, including in the White House, in the Obama White House, who thought that meant this big version of the Affordable Care Act could not be passed. They were ready to go to what Nancy Pelosi took to calling an itsy-bitsy version of the bill. Pelosi wants to go big. She thinks there are only a few opportunities to pass something as far-reaching as the Comprehensive Affordable Care Act, and she is determined to do it. And she goes into a meeting at the White House to discuss what to do after this special election in Massachusetts. And she says to President Obama, you know, you can choose to go small on this bill, to do a bill that just covers children, for instance, but you'll do it without my help. And of course, that is inconceivable. It meant Obama had no option but to go big. And Obama himself, in an interview I did with him for this book, acknowledged that without Pelosi in the Speaker's chair, the Affordable Care Act would never have been enacted. So interesting. She gave him that choice of go big or go home. And it plays right into what we're discussing now with Joe Biden's agenda, because yes, she was absolutely central to shepherding through that infrastructure bill last week, but still on the table is the much bigger plan Joe Biden has uh, for so-called Build Back Better, which contains a whole grab bag of social policy, domestic policy things, but also his big spending plan on the climate crisis. And how does she, Nancy Pelosi, navigate that? Because on the one hand, you've got progressives who want a big spend and a big program, Joe Biden himself, but also you have these moderate or right-wing figures uh, in the Senate, and we've talked about them on the podcast, Joe Manchin, Kirsten Cinema, who want the bill to be much, much smaller. And bridging those two seems almost impossible. How does Nancy Pelosi approach a challenge like that? So Pelosi insists this is there's nothing in the world she would prefer to do than be exactly in this situation. Now, that may or may not be true, but I think this is a tougher task than passing the Affordable Care Act. When she pushed the Affordable Care Act through, she could afford to lose 38 House Democratic votes and still win on a party line vote. To get the Build Back Better Act through, she can lose three Democratic votes. And in the Senate, you had 59 Democrats for the Affordable Care Act. You've got 50 this time, so you cannot lose a single Senate Democrat and still get this through. So there's no guarantee this bill will get passed, but I can tell you that in Washington, the betting, the odds would be much more against it if it wasn't Nancy Pelosi in that negotiating room. Well, tell us about how she will approach it, because in your book, you talk about some of her method and how she talks to every individual member. She even, I mean, this amazed me, she even contacts their religious advisors, you know, their priests or their rabbis, urging them to lean on the congressperson to get their vote. And I'm interested to know whether you think she's going to be doing that right now on this Biden bill, and also whether her reach extends into the Senate. You know, can she pick up the phone to a Joe Manchin and say... You've just got to come on board for this. Before she ran for the House, 
Nancy Pelosi was the finance director for the Democratic Senate Campaign Committee. So she arrived in Washington with all these ties to Democratic senators. So yes, she knows the Democratic Senate. She has a friendship with Joe Manchin who from West Virginia, who is one of the most crucial moderate Democratic votes in the Senate. But getting it through the House is going to be a task and a half. Uh, and here's the argument that she would traditionally make. To progressives, she would say, this is an ambitious bill. This is better than nothing. This is important and consequential. You should vote for it. And to the moderates who are worried if they vote for this big measure and it will cost them re-election in their swing districts, she will say to them, we didn't come here to keep a job. We came here to do a job. This is an opportunity. You have an obligation to step up. And I'm thinking about your half loaf, whole loaf thing. She wouldn't let the this go to, to zero, would she? She wouldn't let this ever be no loaf. I mean, there will be something. Or could you see a situation where progressives just won't vote for it unless it's big enough and Manchin won't vote for it if it's too big and the Democrats end up passing literally nothing and there's no loaf at all on the table? Well, no loaf is always a possibility in Washington. But I would say that Pelosi's bottom line is $1.75 to $1.85 trillion. And to some progressives, that doesn't sound like much because they started at $6 trillion and then they went down to $3.5 trillion. But to most people, $1.75 trillion does sound like quite a bit of money. You mentioned the, the talk of this being her last term. And I want to ask you in a moment about who might take over. But there was talk of her imminent retirement earlier. Back in 2016, people thought that she might step down. And that went out the window when Donald Trump narrowly won the presidency. Can you tell us about what was going through her mind then and why she made that decision to stay? Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Okay. Nancy Pelosi told me that she was, in fact, ready to retire in 2016. Her assumption was that Hillary Clinton was going to be elected president. That was an assumption a lot of us were making. And that at that point, she could step aside with Democrats in control of Congress and of the White House. But of course, on that election night, uh, Donald Trump was the one who won. That was shocking to Pelosi. She did not expect that. Uh, she wasn't alone in being wrong on that election, but she was stunned and alarmed because she felt that Trump was not qualified to be president. She disagreed with him on policy. She didn't, she worried about his character, his attitude toward women uh, concerned her. And so by the end of election night, she told me that she had decided that she would stay. Oh, so her decision was made literally in the few hours of that election. That's right. As she watched the returns come in, you know, the evening started with her doing an interview with the PBS NewsHour. I have on my white and purple colors of the suffragettes in honor of the fact that we have our first woman president, soon to be uh, Hillary Clinton elected president of the United States. In which she was quite confidently predicting that Hillary Clinton would win and that she, Nancy Pelosi, would finally be able to give up the title she has long held as the most powerful woman in American history. But if she does move aside in the coming years, how, how will a successor be chosen? And what's your read of the party in Congress and which direction they would go in following Nancy Pelosi? Well, in 2018, Pelosi actually faced a reasonably serious challenge to being Democratic leader. And at that point, she made a commitment to 
younger House Democrats who thought it was time for a younger generation of leadership, a new generation of leaders to take come forward, that she would serve no more than two more terms. Now, that's not a law. It's not even a Democratic rule, but it's a commitment she made then. And she indicated after she was elected leader in uh, 2020 that she remembered that commitment and that she intended to abide by it. So we expect this to be her last term, although she hasn't said that in the crystal clear way that we reporters wish she would. So when she leaves, the choice of her successor will be up to the Democrats who are elected to the new Congress, the Democrats who are elected to the House in the 2022 midterms. And while we we know there are some favorites and there's some quiet jockeying going on to succeed her, when you think about the electorate involved, you need to know what happens in the midterms because the more Democrats who lose their seats, the more liberal, the more progressive the caucus will be because if Democrats lose seats, it will be in those swing districts that tend to be represented by moderate members. So exactly, the party that will be left will be to the left and they may well want a new leader in their image. Does it suggest to you that the not just she herself that would be gone, but that a speaker in that mould would be gone? Is Nancy Pelosi, and you describe the background, born into you know 1940s democratic politics, uh, is that era well and truly over and there won't be another? There won't be another Nancy Pelosi. Uh, there may be a very effective speaker, a very effective Democratic leader, but it will be in the mold of whoever that person is. And it's a new, there's a new kind of politics uh, rising in this country. It's, it's very partisan. Uh, there are new ways of fundraising that go about. It's the Democratic Party is more liberal. There are changes that this new leader will need to be addressing in ways that Pelosi hasn't had to. Yeah, no, she's, she's in a way somebody who mastered the politics of, of an earlier epoch, uh, which uh, is now very much changing. If this is her last session in Congress and wielding the gavel, does she disappear and become somebody who's quiet in retirement? Or is there a, another act in the life of Nancy Pelosi to come? Well, I have speculation about that. Now, this is not based on reporting, but one of her mentors was a congresswoman named Lindy Boggs a congresswoman from Louisiana. She is the mother of Cokie Roberts, who some of your listeners may be familiar with, who was a NPR correspondent here in the United States who just passed away. And when I interviewed Cokie for this book, she talked about how her mother, Lindy Boggs, had been a member of Congress and that when she retired, she became ambassador to the Holy See. And that she thought maybe Nancy Pelosi would like to do something like that, maybe ambassador to the Vatican, maybe ambassador to Italy, uh, the land where her grandparents had immigrated from. Uh, I could see Pelosi doing that. I could really see it too. Well, you heard it on this podcast first. I think that's, you know, if you want to put a bet on, that's quite a good bet. Um, we always ask, uh, Susan, our guests on the podcast, a what else question, something different. Um, and I thought we would ask you about uh, the surging inflation rate. New figures came out this week with inflation really high around the 6% mark, uh, which it hasn't really been at for perhaps since the sort of Jimmy Carter era in the 70s. Cost of living and how important is it? How worried will the White House be by this dimension of politics where grocery bills and gas prices are rising? This is just a, a huge concern to the Biden White House. Uh, and we see in our polling how much concern voters have 
about the issue of inflation. It is really challenging the issue of jobs when it comes to what people are worried about on the economy. Uh, Your comparison to Jimmy Carter is one that would alarm the Biden White House as well, because Biden wants to portray himself as a bold, big president who will do big things. And Jimmy Carter was a president who, however much people respected his character, they worried he wasn't quite up to the job. If inflation becomes a big problem, not a passing one, that is a comparison that others may also be making to Biden. Yeah, and they won't thank me for it. (laughs) Susan Page, author of Madam Speaker, Nancy Pelosi and the Lessons of Power. Uh, It's all riveting stuff. Thanks so much for speaking to me on the podcast today. Jonathan, it's been a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. And that is all from me for this week. Do make sure to listen back to Wednesday's edition of UK Politics Weekly as Rowena Mason looks back at another terrible week for the Conservative Party as the word sleaze becomes synonymous with the Tories. But for now, I say goodbye. This week's episode was produced by Danielle Stevens, and I'm Jonathan Friedland. Please stay safe out there and thanks as always, for listening. This is The Guardian. COP26 is finally happening, and Science Weekly will be in Glasgow bringing you daily episodes on the latest developments. And that is why... The Glasgow COP26 Summit is the turning point for humanity. Each day you'll be hearing from one of The Guardian's award-winning environment team as they report from the most critical climate conference to ever take place. Listen on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts.